we are continuing our series, The Final Word, and it's found in this week's passage. We're looking at a church by the name of Thyatira. How many people have actually studied this passage before? Not many, probably. Um, But the church in Thyatira, ironically, it's the smallest city in Asia Minor, but it gets the longest letter. The smallest city in Asia Minor gets the longest letter. So Jesus clearly has something to say to Thyatira and to us this morning. So we continue our series uh, on the final word, looking through the first five books of Revelation. What is Jesus's final word, not only to the churches in Asia Minor, but Asia Minor, but to the church today? Revelation chapter two, verse eighteen through twenty-nine. And it says in verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceeded the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule with them, rule them with a rod of iron, as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord and our God stands forever. Amen. You might have heard of the Civil War soldier who was empathetic to the causes of both the North and the South and to show kind of his tolerant stance towards both the North and the South, the Union and the Confederacy, he decided to dress with his jacket, his uniform jacket representing the North and his uniform pants representing the South. The problem is his tolerance and his empathy for both sides didn't allow him to last too long because he was shot at from both sides. And it's similar to what we see happening here in Thyatira. See, it's not because because of a lack of ambition. It's not because of a, a, a lack of doing the things that they did at first. Unlike the church in Ephesus, Jesus says you actually have progressed in what you have been doing at first. So more than likely, Thyatira was this young, vibrant church in this cultural center of Asia Minor that was doing the first things really well actually even better than they were doing them the first time. That wasn't their problem. It wasn't their intolerance to the gospel. It wasn't their intolerance to Jesus Christ or Christianity. In fact, the opposite, the problem that they have here that we just read in this passage was actually their tolerance of everything. 
Jesus on Sunday morning, Jezebel on Monday, Christianity on Sunday, and anything under the sun, Monday through Saturday. You see, it was their tolerance of all things that Jesus says, hey, yeah, you're a young, vibrant, growing church in the cultural and economic center of Asia Minor, but you are letting everything under the sun, allowing it to creep, creep in and influence your teaching and your philosophy and your ideology and your conviction. You tolerate everything and therefore it's hard for me to tolerate you is basically Jesus's message to this church. There's things about this growing vibrant church that Jesus has concerns about. And I wanna briefly look at three things this morning. I wanna look at how does Jesus diagnose them? What's the, what's the, what's the diagnosis for the church of Thyatira? What exactly is the problem? And then lastly and thirdly, what's the remedy? The diagnosis of Thyatira, the problem of Thyatira, and the remedy of Thyatira. In verse 20, although in verse nine, it says that I know your works and your love and faith and service and patient endurance, he dives right in in verse 20 into diagnosing this church and, and understanding kind of what is going on here. And, and he hits them with something that is meant for shock value. It's a shock factor. He calls the person that they have embraced and tolerated, they call this person Jezebel. Now, more than likely, her name wasn't really Jezebel because nobody in the ancient world would have uh, the indecency to name a person Jezebel because they would have been rightfully familiar with the ancient scripture which talks about Jezebel in 1 Kings. Nobody wanted to be Jezebel, be known as a Jezebel, be anything like a Jezebel. So Jesus is doing this to get their attention. You have allowed someone like a Jezebel into your midst. You have tolerated her teaching. You have tolerated her influence. And now now she is beginning to influence you. Instead of the church influencing culture, the culture is now influencing the church. But he calls them, he calls this prophetess that is influencing the church of Thyatira, Jezebel. If you're not familiar with Jezebel, that's okay, because Jezebel uh, might be, you might not be familiar with the passage in which he's found in, but in the Old Testament, 1 Kings, we read about a king, the king of Israel, the king of Israel's name is Ahab, and Ahab is surrounded by political enemies. And so his strategy is, if I marry one of the women from one of these surrounding countries, maybe this would be strategic politically for me. I can win her over, then I maybe can win an entire nation over. So I'm gonna kind of bend the rules. I know we're not supposed to I know we're not supposed to do this. We are God-fearing people, and Jezebel is an evil Gentile. But in order to protect what we have here in Israel, I'm going to bend the rules. I'm going to play, the, play this card. I'm going to play into the hand of culture, and I'm going to marry Jezebel. All hell breaks loose. He bends the rules, plays an, into the hand of culture, allows culture to influence him as, as a king and as a leader of a nation and what begins to happen. Jezebel single-handedly, almost systematically wipes out the entire nation of Israel. One by one, she begins to pick off the priest of the nation of Israel, putting them to death until almost they were this close to not having a nation any longer if it wasn't for the providence and the intervention of God. 
And so Jezebel comes in, turns Israel upside down, picks off priest after priest after priest, almost eliminates the nation of Israel. And this is what Ahab, the man who was called to fear God and to lead the people of God, allows, he tolerates this. He tolerates the influence and the teaching of Jezebel, and it almost wipes out Israel. And you ask, what's relevant to that about that story today? What's relevant to the first king's story? What's relevant to what's going on in Thyatira? What does that have to do with us today? It has everything to do with us today. Because I see a young church that is growing and vibrant and excited. There is, it is so exciting and energizing to be at Coral Ridge on Sunday. Not just for you. I hope you're energized by it, but I'm energized by it. I'm excited about it. But my greatest fear is that as we see God rebuild his church, as we see God bring energy and new life into our church, my greatest fear is that we begin to compartmentalize what we hear and believe on Sunday morning and it doesn't make any difference whatsoever Monday through Saturday. That we can live as citizens of the kingdom of God and we can say the right things and do the right things on Sunday morning when we worship, but we live for the kingdom of this world Monday through Saturday. It's wait, we have competing values and competing kingdoms and we all wrestle with it. We all struggle with this tension. Citizens of the kingdom of God and citizens of the kingdom of this world And what we slowly begin to see happen is we begin to see a church that is uniquely positioned to be a catalytic engine to reform and reshape and influence culture so that people living in Fort Lauderdale say this is a better place to live because of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. We slowly see that mission and that purpose reversed and the culture begins to influence us as a church. The culture begins to shape us as Christians so that when the gospel we hear preached on Sunday morning doesn't make a lick of difference in what we do and how we work and how we spend our money and the relationships that we enter into and what we do Monday through Saturday. The diagnosis, not only for the church of Thyatira, I think it would be the the church in North America. And God forbid that that happens here at Coral Ridge, that we would believe a gospel and hear a gospel and champion a gospel and it wouldn't make a difference in how we live our lives when we leave here and we walk out those doors and enter into the kingdom Monday through Saturday. Abraham Kuyper, who uh, the great Dutch reformer and statesman, I'm sure some of you have heard this uh, quote, but Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God says, I am either sovereign over all of your life or I'm sovereign over nothing in your life. I am Lord of all or I am Lord of nothing. That there is no such thing about the kingdom of God on Sunday morning at church and then this kingdom, this uh, this competing kingdom Monday through Saturday. God is sovereign over all. The gospel that changes and transforms your life must be the same gospel that changes and informs the way that you live and move and breathe and make decisions and work. Monday through Saturday, that was their diagnosis. Embrace Christ on Sunday and every other religious and cultural ideology Monday through Saturday. But you might be asking, if that's the diagnosis, then what's the problem? The problem we see here is we have a very intolerant Jesus. And that's a problem. 
And you might be sitting here this morning and you go, that's it? My wife convinced me to come here this morning. My husband convinced me to come here this morning. This is why I don't like organized religion. I told you so. You're getting the elbow in the side right now. This is why I don't like Christianity or exclusive truth claims or organized religion because they all end up like this. You've got an intolerant Jesus who says you either take all of me or you don't take any of me. And there is no room in between we couldn't have here a more culturally Ill, irrelevant or intolerant Jesus than the one that we have presented to us in Revelation chapter two. What? He doesn't, I mean, as long as I'm giving my tithe and serving on Sunday morning and coming to worship, I mean, as long as I, I mean, I'm not abandoning him exclusively Monday through Saturday. I mean, he really wants all of me. My life, my job, my career, my goals, my children, my family, my home, the way I spend my money, everything, sovereign over all. So we see presented here the problem after the diagnosis is a very intolerant Jesus. And the reason Jesus is so intolerant is the scripture tells us that he is the visible expression of the invisible God. And God, as he's presented to us from the beginning of the foundation of the world, is presented to us as a God that is holy and set apart. And because Jesus is God, he is presented to us in the New Testament as the God-man who is holy and set apart and forever belongs to Jesus is called to live this life that is holy and set apart with no exceptions. That is the only thing that Jesus requires, that you would live exclusively for him, that there would be no other Lord, there would be no other God, there would be no other idol, there would be no other truth in which we live our life. And when we sin, when we sin, in the small ways and in the big ways, what we are admitting to ourselves and to the world is that Christ is not all sufficient because there is something lacking in my life. There is a void that this idol or this culture or something in this world can provide me that Christ is failing to provide. And it flies in the face of Paul in Colossians 1, where he says he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Notice all of the alls in this passage. He is in heaven and on earth. He is visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, talking about Christ, were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body and of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. And when we allow sin and the culture to begin to shape your life and the life of the church and the life of the Christian, what we are saying is Christ is no longer preeminent. He is not the first and the last. He is not the beginning and the end. He is one of many things, but he is not preeminent. He is not the all-sufficient God as he is presented to us in the scripture. And so what does Jesus say as he addresses this problem in the, in the church of Thyatira? In verse 22, 
He says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into the great tribulation. He calls what the church of Thyatira are doing. Some might see this as extreme, but he calls it adultery. Why? He calls what they're doing adultery because he says that what the culture is doing and the greatest temptation of Satan is to draw your heart and your love and your affections away from the one that can satisfy all of your love and joy and affection. To get you to believe that in order to have love and affection and meaning and purpose, you need something other than Jesus. Like an adulterous woman pulling her, you away to something greater and more beautiful. He calls it what it is. And in verse 23, he goes on to say, and I will strike her children dead and all the children will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. What is Jesus talking about there? I am the one that searches mind and heart. What Jesus is trying to tell them is you are doing things and tolerating things and living in such a way you don't even see it. You think you can dabble in this and dabble in that. You think you can bend the rules. You think you can stretch the limits and the boundaries of your life. But I see things that you don't see and I know things that you don't know. And what Jesus is trying to say is I see those things that you think are small and innocent and they will lead to the destruction of your life. I am watching you go down this path that you think you have control of, whatever that might be, And I see a person ready to go off a cliff. I see things and know things that you cannot see and know. And that's why you must always live your life under the authority of Christ because only he knows and sees what you can never know and see. He knows what is best for you. Jesus doesn't come in here and say, don't sin just for the sake of not sinning. He says, don't sin because you are leading your life and heading towards destruction. I offer life and the world and the culture and all of its idols and all of its promises will always overpromise and never deliver. And you will be sucked in every time to live a better life, a healthier life, a more beautiful life, a more successful life, a wealthier life, and you will be sucked in every time by the promises of this culture, and they will always overpromise, and they will never deliver, never. And he says, I know it, and I see it when it's happening. And that's exactly what happened in the story of Jezebel. See, the story of Jezebel and the Israelites is that they thought they could have all of the political freedom, all of the success, all of the military power, more commerce, more success, more wealth, more approval, more satisfaction, more peace, expand the borders, but it brought them nothing but death. And I asked you this morning, what's your Jezebel? What's your Jezebel this morning? That thing that you go, I know what Rob says on Sunday morning. I know what we believe as Christians. I know, I know, but there's that thing out there that I'm pretty convinced if I had that, that would be the difference maker. What's your Jezebel this morning? Not the thing that pulls you exclusively away from God, which can always be the most destructive. It kind of keeps one foot in and one foot out. What's your Jezebel this morning? Luring you in, saying if you just had this, 
then life would be what you always thought it would be. So if that's the problem, lastly, what's the remedy? How does the church of Thyatira fix this? What is the remedy to this problem that they're facing? Verse 25, Jesus says, only hold fast what you have until I come. The word there, hold fast, that phrase there means to tightly grip and to tightly grip it in such a way that there is no other room for anything else to fall into your grip. That you are gripping on so tightly to Jesus that you could not possibly hold on to anything else. There is nothing else left in the, in the palm of your hand to grip onto because you are so tightly and firmly gripping on to Jesus. He says, hold fast. But the question is, how do we hold fast? How do we hold fast in such a way that we can never imagine letting go? Well, the answer is actually found back in 1 Kings. If you remember what happened at the end of that story, after Ahab marries Jezebel, all hell breaks loose, systematic destruction of the nation of Israel, the remaining faithful prophets of God say, we're gonna have it out with your gods. And we're gonna have a showdown. And we're gonna showdown, we're gonna go to the temple and we're gonna put the bull on the altar of the sacrifice. And you that have tolerated the gods and the idols of our culture, you're gonna cry down to your God and see if he will rain down with fire. And so all of the prophets that have tolerated the false idols and the false gods, they begin to sing and to dance over and over and over again, and what happens? No fire. And then the prophets that had remained faithful to God, they begin to pray to our God, and in an instant, fire rains down from heaven. And the, the false prophets, those that had broken their loyalty to God, that had tolerated the gods and the idols and the philosophies and the ideologies of the culture, bow down and worship and never will we forsake the one true and living God. And in that moment, fire rains down and it burns the bull on the altar of the sacrifice. But you see, that sacrifice, that fire raining down from heaven, should have been for the false prophets. That fire raining down from heaven, God had every right to strike them down, but instead he burns up the sacrifice on the altar. And that sacrifice on the altar would point to the great sacrifice thousands of years later that God being just could have wiped us out and said you're disobedient and you're sinful and you tolerate everything under the sun, but instead the Bible tells us the good news that God was not even willing to spare his own son. And God puts his son on the altar. And when the fire rains down from heaven, it does not strike one person that is connected to Jesus Christ. But for all those that are found in Jesus Christ is life and life more abundantly. You see, we are able this morning to hold fast to Jesus because Jesus has first in the message of the gospel held fast to us. That he has come down and the promise of God is that for whoever God puts in the palm of his hand through the work of Jesus Christ, you can never be snatched out. 
never removed. You are firmly gripped, held fast because of the work of Jesus Christ. So that God in your life is the one who over promises and always delivers. Promises in ways that you could never expect or anticipate and delivers every single time. It's looking to the sacrifice of the cross that I pray moves you this morning and says, how could I live for anyone else? He is the all-sufficient one. He is the preeminent one. He is the one who has done for me what I could never have done for myself. He has rescued me and loved me and adored me and saved me and met me at my deepest need, not even willing to spare his only son for you and for me. A few weeks ago, I heard of a guy in a church, faithful church attender, longtime member, but was promiscuous, married, kids, came to church on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday was a different story, the way he lived his life in promiscuity. And the pastor comes to this man and he says, you know you can't live like this. And he says, pastor, with all due respect, I come to church on Sunday, I pay my tithe, I come to worship, I serve on Sunday when I can, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but what I do Monday through Saturday is really none of your business. He said, wait a second, you can't profess to believe in Jesus Christ and believe in his gospel and live this way. He says, pastor, once again, with all due respect, I know what God says, I know what the Bible says. If you have to write me up, discipline me, whatever you need to do, do it. I'm not changing the way I live. Well, this gentleman was part of the National Guard and part of his uh, duty was to go overseas to Iraq. He spent three months in Iraq and had the most sobering job that I can ever imagine. His job was to spend three months processing counting dead bodies of Americans. Three months counting and processing dead bodies. And when he came back and his feet hit American soil, he went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, I have now seen and now understand the brevity of life and how fragile it is. And when I think of my life apart from Christ, I am now understand that I am no better off than those dead bodies laying on the ground in Iraq. Jesus is all sufficient. He is preeminent for me. He goes and he transforms his life, reconciles with his wife and with his children and says forever, my life will be changed and different because of what Christ has done for me. You see, there is no God like our God. This same God, this same God who spared the Israelites in first Kings, this same God that would not even spare his own son is the same God that is offered to you this morning. This same God that would not sacrifice even his own son, that God is offered to you. And I ask you this morning, do you know him? And are you tired? Are you tired of living your whole life thinking that there's just one more thing under the sun that will promise me what only God can deliver in the person of Jesus Christ? And I would ask you and challenge you this morning that you would not live another day until you at least reconcile in your mind, could this all be true? Could Christ be the preeminent one that I have been searching for my entire life? And if it is true, could he be true for you? And that you would enter into relationship with him this morning. Coral Ridge, 
plead with you. Hold fast. This is a dangerous world that we live in. Coleridge, hold fast to the one true God. And would you, we as a church, live according to the promise of the all-sufficient love of God for every area of our life and would it transform us forever because it's your only hope and the only hope for our world.